0: Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. Today I'm going to be sharing some thoughts on Genesis chapters one through nine. Hopefully you have or will in the near future read through Genesis yourself so that you can evaluate all of this. But most of you probably know that this section of Genesis could really be summarized as a section of beginnings. You have the creation of the world, the beginning of mankind, and the new beginnings after the flood. Now, if you've been listening to anything else that I've shared, you know that I view the Bible as the Word of God, as having been preserved for us. And I'm not going to get into any argument or evidence for that here except I will look for a couple of links that I can put on the blog post. But I will just say that there is lots of both historical evidence, scientific evidence, and evidence within the scriptures itself that these the Bible is something that can be believed. So it is from this conclusion that I'm beginning this discussion. So if God put this section about beginnings in the Bible, then it's important. I see several reasons why it's important. It sets the stage for the preeminence of God, for the glory of creation in its initial goodness, for the beginning of sin and the rebellion on earth and the impact of sin due to the terribleness of it, and God's first statements for a plan to deal with sin and evil. There is nothing in the telling of this account of creation in the beginning that gives us any indication that we are not supposed to take this as an actual, literal event. The clearest, most straightforward reading of this is that God did what he said he did here. Unfortunately, even among Christians, the discussion of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in particular can't even really proceed unless we address claims that claim to be scientific that need to be supposedly accommodated. It helps to begin with just discussing the idea of experts. Experts, or people who know things that we don't, do exist. But it is pretty easy to make a good case that we should be skeptically evaluating what any individual or group of proclaimed experts holds to. But the clincher here is, Since when do experts, based on man's limited wisdom and understanding, trump a clear account provided by God? First of all, science is not a thing. It is not even a set of unchangeable or irrefutable facts. It is an ongoing exploration of what we can observe and record. Secondly, men, even in their most honest attempts, don't come close to understanding things right in front of their noses. They may act like they do, but a little examination of recent history and current research exposed the facade. The understanding of even the most urbane, supposedly simple bodily functions is always changing. What so many times was initially thought to have a simple explanation is proving to be much more complex The excitement of a small degree of understanding, which often appears so large next to the previous ignorance, leads too often to arrogance about what is known, and people cling to it religiously, maybe because it makes them feel powerful, like they are more in control of their world. Thirdly, knowing steps to take to make a technology or set of elements do something is different than knowing exactly why it works. Light is an example of this. We as a civilization know how to harness certain natural processes to cause light, not create it. But the exact nature of light is still a mystery. Even as scientists believe they are discovering smaller and smaller particles with behaviors that they are trying to define... They're finding these particle behaviors beyond their comprehension. It seems that knowledge of details often leads to more realization of just how complicated the universe is, but not necessarily a foundational understanding, especially if a person denies a creator. Fourth, questioning the claims of previous scientists is the basis of ongoing scientific exploration. It's not science-denying. If a person chooses to start with the premise that God's record is meant to communicate truth to us, that is at least as good a premise as God's word needs to be read in light of what limited and changing discoveries men make in the world around them. Fifth, over and over I hear and read the explanation that the Genesis account seems to be very straightforward, but Our scientific experts predominantly agree on things like the age of the earth and evolution. Aside from the fact that consensus is never a good way to agree on truth, most of the people saying that we need to accommodate the Bible to scientific experts are highly credentialed themselves, so I think they are giving in to the temptation to view the credentials of man as superior to an obvious reading of the scriptures that God gave us. In part, it validates their own expertise based on the credentials of man. And I think they are missing that the scripture is written for everyone, not just for experts. It does not need people with degrees to teach the church. It just needs people who are born again and led by the Holy Spirit maturing in their walk with God. Also, these people are still holding to other parts of Scripture that the majority of scientists deny. Why give in to the denial of the creation week, which, by the way, God himself validates when talking to the Israelites in Exodus about the meaning of the Sabbath? I think it is because they view it as less crucial to the gospel message, but while it is not part of the succinct telling of the gospel, it is still important in both a presentation of believing what God claims and a basis for the rest of the Bible, including the gospel. The very appropriate literal reading, as it seems most obvious to mean in Genesis 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, is the strongest possible foundation for the gospel. I am not questioning the salvation, it's not my place to question the salvation of those who disagree with the clear, straightforward reading of the Genesis creation history. I am just saying that I see on every front that their position is unnecessary, based on worldly wisdom, and undermines the gospel message, even though they try to say it doesn't. Any claim that taking the Bible at face value is anti-scientific is a ploy to place the scripture in the realm of fantasy by those who want to sideline it, by those who want to reject God. There is no reason to play the game on their terms, including compromising. There is no reason to compromise a clear reading to appease the world. They will never be satisfied until a person or religious organization denies the true God altogether. To those of the world, the gospel is foolishness, beginning with the account of creation. People will get their most accurate, most complete understanding of what is going on in the world, from everything to measuring the distance of stars based on the speed of light, to understanding certain uh, sediments with fossils in them. If their evaluation is based on the truth that God reveals— not the wild imagination of men who reject God anyway. If they really want to understand how all their calculations and observations can make sense or help them harness the natural world, they should begin with truths provided for us by our Creator. God has given us this account of creation. You have to be in awe of a Creator who can just speak things into existence— It helps us to get a glimpse of his greatness and his absolute hands-on interactions with us. It is telling that even after Adam and Eve rebelled against God's instructions, he talks with them about the future. Some of it includes consequences, but some of it includes hope. He also talks to Cain to warn him about sin crouching at his door that he should overcome. And apparently, they could even stay in God's presence because in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, it talks about Cain specifically leaving God's presence. The way the genealogies are done, specifically in chapter 5, are also another indication that we are supposed to take this as real history. gives real names, real numbers of years, and it uses wording to say that someone actually was the exact father of someone, which is a little different from later when they use the word son, sons of this and sons of that, which can be translated more as descendants. I've always found it interesting to look at the charts that show the overlaps in these first generations and just how much they could have known each other because we're unused to that with our short lifespans. But even with these long lifespans, it didn't do people any more good in discovering or following the truth. In chapter 6, God says the wickedness was so great that he wanted to destroy man. It says, every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was continually only evil. That's a heavy statement. These were people who were close to the first generations and had chances to know and talk with the people who knew and talked with God, but they rejected him. So God washed the earth clean of this putrid filth, saving the only man still alive who listened to him. Noah had to do some serious work, and one can only imagine the ridicule, the ridicule of men who had lived hundreds of years, seen the way the natural world worked, and probably said it was uh, um, anti-science to think there would be a flood. Their arrogance finally caught up with them. In chapter 7 of Genesis, we have the first mention of the number 40 as a time period that is a proving or a cleansing. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and God cleansed the earth and proved his faithfulness to the promise of Eve and to Noah, who believed in him. And Noah proves his faith in God by acting accordingly. Then when it comes to when the rain started or when the rain stopped or when the earth dried, we are given dates for this because it was real. I have thought of how very strange the land, the earth, must have looked to Noah with civilization as they knew it wiped out and everything just bare. But right off, Noah built an altar and he sacrificed animals. Even before the law was given to the nation of Israel, People understood that you had to approach God, Yahweh, a certain way because of sin. Some blood had to be spilled in order for us to humbly approach God. The theme of recognizing blood as important to life is highlighted again when God says that he's now given them living things for food, meat, but they are not to eat the blood. And he really only gives them one rule here, and that is, again, don't murder. He says, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his own image. Then we get the promise of the rainbow. And it's odd to think that the rainbow was a new thing then. I think the rainbow is an example of how miracles won't change people's mind because whatever amazing thing God does, people get used to it and they say, oh, this just naturally happens. This doesn't prove there's a God. And they fail to recognize that all these things they become used to are miraculous because they only exist by God's creation and power. Then we have to end chapter 9, unfortunately, with a story that illustrates that right away there was sin in the world still, and that is where Noah makes the mistake of drinking too much wine and getting drunk, and his son Ham making fun of him and being very disrespectful. So this section of Genesis chapters 1 through 9 leaves us both with hope, because not only do we have the rainbow and the fact that God is not going to destroy the earth with a flood while it remains, but also the sad realization that men continue to be wicked and they need their Redeemer. I stopped at the end of chapter 9 because that's when Noah died. He lived 350 years after the flood, and I... All total, he lived 950 years. That is an amazingly long lifespan. I don't know that I can even comprehend that. But then it is just a slice compared to the eternity that we have if we believe on the name of Jesus. Thanks for letting me share my thoughts with you. See you next time. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey.